Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us here. So we're going to consider this subject, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? We're going to look at this in five different stages. So first of all, we're going to consider why this is important. And then I want to talk about the historical approach, which I want to use this afternoon. We're going to look at some historical facts which support Jesus' resurrection. Then we're going to look at some objections and other theories. And, and then we'll draw things to a conclusion. Before we go into this, um, I thought I'd just highlight a book which I found very helpful when considering this subject. It's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. It's by two um, theological historians, if you call them that, um, by, called Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona. Um, I thoroughly recommend this um, to go into a bit more detail of some of the points we're going to bring out today. So firstly, to consider why we believe this is an important subject. So this here on the screen is from Romans chapter 6. Um, I'm hoping, I'm not actually sure the green colour scheme is working so well in terms of highlighting words, so I'll make sure I read them. Um, but um, this is to pick out um, words from Paul that he wrote around 57 AD. So he said, for if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And then later on in the verses, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this passage which Paul writes here in Romans his intention here is to identify the death of, and resurrection of Jesus with the Christian hope of resurrection from the dead. The argument being that, um, you know, that um, Jesus' death and resurrection is central to why we, when we die, we can also be raised. And the reading that we took together at the start also covers this. So this is from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that we read together. Um, from verse 12 of Acts, where we read, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's fairly bold words. But if there was no resurrection, then there's no real point in having a faith. It's essentially what, what Paul's saying here. It's the, the idea of Jesus' resurrection is that central to the Christian hope. Um, we read further on here. So, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So there is no real purpose in the Christian religion. There's no purpose in the Bible or in faith in God if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. It is that central. So when we ask why is this important, well this is the, the principle, the, the whole um, building block which our entire faith is built up on. Okay, so considering that, I want to look at what we call the historical approach. I put a question on here um, at the start, which I want us to just have a think about. So do we believe in the resurrection because it's in the Bible? 
or do we believe in the Bible because of the resurrection? Now that might, may sound like a bit of a chicken and egg or catch-22 type situation, but the point I want to make here is that most, you know, us in this room, we, we believe the Bible, we accept the Bible, we've probably been reading the Bible for quite a long amount of time. But if I was to go out of this room, outside, and to say, right, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells me so. Or if I were to just say a statement like that to my colleagues at work, for example, then most people don't accept the Bible. They don't accept it as authoritative. They don't, most people don't read the Bible. They, for, for most people, that's not necessarily a valid reason to believe. So what I want to do is turn that question on its head and say, OK, well, we will use the Bible here as a historical source, but we'll look also at other reasons as well, backed up by historians, which suggest why it makes sense that the resurrection took place. And then we think, OK, so if, a, if we can show that it makes sense that the resurrection took place and the Bible speaks of a resurrection, then that helps to prove the Bible. That helps to give weight to what the Bible says, that the Bible talks about an event which makes sense um, and is, can be historically accepted. So I want us to look at five different historical facts which point towards the resurrection. So these are, firstly, that Jesus died on the cross. Secondly, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. Third, we'll look at the conversion of Paul. Fourth, the conversion of James. And then fifth, the empty tomb. So we'll take these in turn. We will refer to the Bible, but we'll refer to um, other historical writings as well and try and approach this almost like a historian or even a detective of trying to pull together evidence which, which points to, towards um, a conclusion. So firstly, the idea that we want to establish is that Jesus died on the cross. And I've put four quotes here on the screen which have been written from various different historians. The first of which is from the historian Josephus, who um, was a, essentially lived in the first century AD, um, and he wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, um, which essentially detailed a lot about what, the, um, what was then known as Palestine, um, was, or, or modern-day Israel, was like in the time of the first century. And he refers to Jesus as part of this book. And uh, he referred, there's a quote here saying that when Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified. So, firstly, Josephus here is writing to say yeah, there was a Pilate who was in charge of Palestine, had condemned Jesus to be crucified, which again we can read about in the Bible. Then a later book here from Tacitus, who's one of the most famous of all the Roman historians, um, talks about the Emperor Nero and says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Right, so Tacitus is a Roman historian. He didn't live in this, this region of the world, but he, he was talking here about the Emperor Nero who persecuted Christians. 
and he said they're called Christians because they follow a man called Christus or Christ um, and that Christ had suffered the extreme penalty i.e. he had been put to death and then another quote here from another historian Lucian of Samosata says that the Christians you know worship a man to this day the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So they follow, the Christians follow Jesus, who was crucified. And then the last one is very interesting. This comes from a Jewish Talmud, um, written in the late 2nd century AD. Um, so it's a Jewish writing, which says, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, or Jesus, was hanged. So if we think about that one, and think about the case, so there's a Jewish writing which has said that Jesus was put to death. Now, we'll come on to see, see this further, um, but historically the, um, the Jews they don't, haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews are waiting for a Messiah, but they did, they did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and when we read the Bible, we can read about how Jesus was largely put to death due to the actions of the, the Jewish authorities um, and that um, the Jews had a story that the body must have been stolen. So we've got the Jewish writings, they don't want, the Jewish um, leaders did not want to promote Christianity, they did not want to promote the idea that um, Jesus was anything other than a criminal, but they have written down here that Jesus was hanged. So they wrote, they've written down in a fairly official set of writings that this man Jesus existed and was hanged. If there was any suggestion that Jesus didn't exist or didn't die, then the Jewish Talmud would have probably said that, or they certainly wouldn't have said this. It's, think about it, if you are in a, um, a let's say, a, a minor bump in a car park, and um, say that I had reversed out of a, a parking space and somebody had, um, had gone right into the side of me. Then that person who's gone right into the side of me um, would either say, no, it wasn't me, or they'd say that I went into them, um, which is obviously not the case because they went into the side of me. Um, and um, they, they would kind of suggest but they'd write things to, 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 um, to make it quite clear that it wasn't their fault. But they, they wouldn't outright lie because their, their claim just wouldn't stand up at all. And I think this is a similar situation here. The writers of the Jewish Talmud do not want to help the cause of the Christians in the same way that man who went into the side of me doesn't want to help my insurance claim. Um, but they're quite happy here to, to write that Jesus was hanged. So a party who would, if, if it was at all suggested that Jesus didn't actually exist or Jesus didn't die, they would have said that. Um, but they're quite happy to accept here that Jesus absolutely died. Which I think is interesting because it's come from somebody who doesn't want to back up the idea of Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, moving on, we want to look at the idea of Jesus' disciples, the people who absolutely did want to back up the idea of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I've put up on the screen here part of the reading we took together from 1 Corinthians 15. And I've highlighted a few different sections which we'll come on to talk about. So first of which um, is this section which comes from verse 3. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, the suggestion from um, the historians is that that was actually a well-known saying which got passed down. So if you think about it, this I've put the dates here, but first community is understood to be written around 55 AD. So that's around 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in that time, the message had spread. We can read about it in the book of Acts. But they would have needed to have some form of teaching to actually pass on to people. They didn't have the Gospels written down. They didn't have these letters written down. Um, and the suggestion is that there, there was what, known as, what was known as creeds, or essentially um, a series of sayings that were passed down to teach the core parts of the Gospel. And the suggestion was that this was, um, this was, was core, and this was one of them. Um, and that's why Paul says they delivered to you as a first importance what he received. It was the, 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 the saying which he had learned and come to understand about, um, about Jesus' death. Um, and his resurrection. Um, the interesting as well, I've just highlighted that he appeared to James. We'll come on to talk about James later in the talk. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And what Paul is there talking about about his own conversion, which again we'll, we'll come to talk about later in this talk. Um, the point here so, is that this First Corinthians 15 makes a claim here that the apostles were preaching the resurrection. So he said, he, he, he was, <coughs> Paul's phrase, I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received. So he would have been taught this by somebody. Um, and um, that each one of the Gospels that we read in the Bible details the resurrection. That was written down by four different writers, each of them within around 70 years of the event. So we... We, we, we get from this that people were talking and people were writing about this event of the resurrection. And there are also other writings um, from early Christians which also teach it. So I'm going to put an example on the board um, from a man called Clement. He was um, understood to have been a bishop of Rome um, and um, a bishop in the first century sense of it. Of a word, um, and he is very briefly mentioned in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, in Philippians 4, verse 3, um, he talks about having worked with Clements. Uh, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clements and the rest of my fellow workers, um, whose names are in the book of life. So, very briefly mentioned as somebody who would help with. Again, one of the his, historical books, it's this one about Irenaeus against heresies, also talks about Clements. It said Clement was allotted the bishopric, so he was, he was, uh, he was a leader of the, Rome, of the church in Rome in the first century. It said this man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing and their traditions before his eyes. What that essentially means is that this man, Clement, um, knew the apostles. Paul himself was an apostle, 
Paul has written in Philippians talking about Roman Clement. So that, that makes sense, that ties together. And it says that he might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing and their traditions um, before his eyes. In other words, the message that Clement was teaching was consistent with what the apostles said. He taught the same, the same message at this time. And then we actually have um, Clement's letter to, the, letter to Corinth. Again, it's not a biblical letter, but it's another letter that was um, written in, by the early church around 95 AD, which says, Therefore, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and believing in the word of God, they went with a Holy Spirit certainty, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is about to come. So Clement was somebody who knew the apostles, he knew what they taught, it said that he taught the same thing as them, and we can see his teachings written down in that letter talking about the resurrection. The point of this um, is that, again, if you think of what we said earlier in the talk about using the Bible as a historical source, lots of people outside say, well, I don't necessarily believe the Bible. We've seen the Bible talk about the resurrection. But we've also seen lots of other writings at the time also talk about the resurrection. So if somebody's going to say, right, I'm not going to believe this because it's the Bible and I don't believe the Bible, when you, say, when you can say, well, okay, what about all these other historical writings which also refer to the event? And it's not so simple as to say, I can't accept it because I can't accept the Bible. The other point here is around Jesus' disciples, is how they actually changed. So we can read in the Gospels um, of these men who essentially, um, well, they denied Jesus. We know Peter denied him. We know they all essentially abandoned him at, at his death and went back to their old jobs. But they then became bold preachers of the Gospel. And you might think, again, somebody who's maybe sceptical about the Bible thinks, well, now, how much of that could really be in the case? Did these people really transform themselves? But there is plenty of written evidence which suggests many of the early Christians were martyred for their beliefs. Um, we can read about Stephen in Acts, um, in the Bible, but also this is a, a writing from um, Tertullian, from 200 AD, saying that Paul is beheaded, has been written in their own blood, then is Peter girt by another when he is made fast to the cross. So, written probably around 100, 150 years after the events, here talking about how Paul and Peter were both understood to have also died for their beliefs. So, the dis so we have evidence to suggest that the disciples were willing to suffer for their belief of a resurrection. If they were willing to suffer and die, then that certainly indicates that they absolutely believe in resurrection. Um, and they certainly believe those beliefs is true. If they had any doubts, then they'd back out before they were crucified or, or hanged uh, or beheaded. But they absolutely believed in this, and the, the historical facts point towards that. So some special cases. First, we'll look at the conversion of Paul. So we can read in, in the book of Acts, uh, in the Bible, about Paul. We can read about in, in Acts chapter 8, um, it's a passage of Stephen's execution, um, and we read in the first one, and Saul approved of his execution. And um, we read that Saul was ravaging against the church. Um, we do read on about how Saul becomes Paul. Um, and then Acts 9, um, which is where we read of his conversion, um, it says, but Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So this man who 
was a um, essentially a, a Jewish official um, was um, strongly against the Christians and was going around um, essentially murdering them and, and threatening them. And we can read of, of his conversion. So, so reading this quote here, he said, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you, what you are to do. So we go on to read about how that was the start of uh, Paul's conversion. He, he changed his name from Saul to Paul, uh, and he became one of the leaders of the Christian church. And indeed, he's the writer of, most of, the, uh, of a lot of the New Testament books. From our reading that we took in First Corinthians 15, we remember he said, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Um, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And again, no matter what you, what you think about the Bible, if you take your this, you've got one book which is called Acts, which has been written down by Luke, which has described this event about this man called Saul. And then you've got another letter to Corinthians, been written down by that man Saul or who became Paul who has essentially verified the same event he's he's um, said yeah I was um, somebody who persecuted the church um, and Jesus appeared to me and that's how I was converted just as that says and another of Paul's letters here um, to, to the Galatians um, he writes, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism because of my own age among my people, so extremely, jealous, uh, extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So we've seen here two different letters that Paul's written which back up what Acts has said, that, he was, that Jesus appeared to him. Let's think about his situation. So Saul, who was a Pharisee, he was a persecutor of the church. He became Paul, he became a preacher of the gospel and the author of much of the New Testament. What would have caused that kind of conversion? Now, according to Acts, according to the writings of Paul that we've just seen as well, it was because he believed that he had actually seen the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. His conviction was strong enough to persuade him to leave behind a life, essentially, of the Jewish elite, to live a life of suffering and most likely eventual martyrdom. So he absolutely believed that and... Um, Whatever events he must have seen on the road to Damascus was strong enough for him to live a complete turnaround in his life. Um, and there's no reason to suggest um, that that didn't happen. And all the writings we have about Paul are absolutely consistent with that. Another case is James. James, um, there's a few different Jameses in the New Testament. This was James was Jesus' natural brother uh, in that he was the son of Mary and of Joseph. Um, 
from what we see in the Gospels, um, we um, understand he didn't believe at the time. Um, I've just put there, he is referred to by Josephus as being the brother of Jesus. But we can see if you look at Matthew 13, verse 35, the people say about Jesus, is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So we get an idea that Jesus, um, although he was obviously the son of God, he grew up in the household of Mary and Joseph. And John 7 tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. So presumably James, Joseph, Simon and Judas were not believers. There's a passage in Mark chapter 3 as well, um, when Jesus is teaching, and we read his, his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So we have this picture, we don't see much mention of Jesus' natural family in the Gospels, but the suggestion here is that his, his own brothers, with his family, didn't believe he was the son of God. They would have believed he was essentially one of them, their own natural brother. Now, again, I'm just going back to our reading that we took in 1 Corinthians 15, that told, tells us that Jesus appeared to James. And we, in the letters uh, and in Acts, we see James mentioned a few other times. Um, and he has changed quite a bit. Um, if we just turn to Acts chapter 15... <laughs> Um, this case, I'm not going to read out the full quote here, but read in verse 12, all the assembly, assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Uh, and then he goes on, to, goes on to speak. And James here is the leader of the Jerusalem church and is understood to be the brother of Jesus. He's also mentioned in Galatians chapter 1. Um, and verse, uh, so go from verse 18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James, the Lord's brother, we know here is definitely an apostle. We believe he's the, the man who was, lead, was the head of the Jerusalem church. So he's gone from being one of these people who were saying that Jesus was out of his mind, who didn't believe him when he was alive, to after the, after the event of Jesus' death, um, we understand Jesus is, uh, James is now an apostle and leader of the church. And there is, um, again, historical suggestions, and sort of the historians on the screen, which said that James would have actually died as a martyr as well. So similar to Paul, the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection led James to live a very completely different life from being the carpenter's son and probably sceptic of his, uh, his brother who um, said things he didn't necessarily understand to completely um, dedicating his life to Jesus. And the fifth um, factor we want to look at is found the empty tomb. So each of the four Gospels describes Jesus' resurrection with his tomb left empty, with the stone rolled away. Um, 
I'm not going to turn to each of those uh, in turn, um, but this quote on the screen comes from the Matthew record, uh, Matthew 28. It's read, um, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave him a sufficient sum of money to the, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, "Tell people his disciples came by night and stole away him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him uh, and keep him you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So if we think about it, there's a Roman guard and a big heavy stone outside the um, outside the tombs keeping Jesus in there and then we believe because of the resurrection that was rolled away um, and Jesus's body wasn't there anymore but if you think it from, from the perspective of those guards who are outside the tomb they would have had quite a lot of explaining to do about how that body was not there anymore um, and what this passage tells us is that the, the Jewish leaders had given these people some money and told them just say that the disciples stole the body. If the disciples were allowed to stole the body, the guard clearly wasn't doing a very good job, quite likely got sacked, um, and that money was probably then going to keep them going instead of their, their jobs as guards. Now, there are early Christian writers um, who also refer to, to this claim that the disciples stole the body. Now, there would have been no need for any explanation of a missing body if the tomb wasn't empty. <clears throat> so if this, ha if this was all completely made up, then they wouldn't need, they wouldn't need to have um, anybody explaining that, um, that the body was stolen. Um, no one was able to produce Jesus' corpse, and if they were, this would have essentially proven the whole claim incorrect. So if you're looking from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, they had to say, oh, the body was stolen, we don't know where the corpse is gone. If they could have found the corpse, they could have put the whole matter to bed, but they couldn't. So the, the likelihood is the tomb absolutely was empty, because otherwise there would have been no need to make up the story that the body got stolen. Now, all four Gospels also refer to um, women who initially seeing the tomb be, be empty and telling people that it was empty. Now, this is very different to the society we're in today. Um, but in first century um, Jewish culture, um, at that time, a, a testimony of a woman wasn't seen as valid. What that essentially means is that, um, if, and it's very different to the world we live in now, but if a woman had made a claim, then many people wouldn't believe it and would want her husbands to make the claim instead. So if you were trying to make this up, if you were trying to fabricates that the tomb was empty and you were writing down the gospels to do that then you wouldn't have really said you wouldn't have described it as being said by women because people wouldn't have believed it very different to, to well now obviously but um that again is a suggestion that this you know, this was just essentially reporting the facts though all four gospels talk about women um referring to the empty tomb um if you're trying to make it up you probably would have said it was the governor or somebody who had claimed it, not a woman. Okay, so we've gone through those facts and terms. So the five facts that Jesus died on the cross, 
that Jesus and his disciples believed that he had risen and that he'd appeared to them, that Paul and James were both converted and that the tomb was empty. You can explain all of those five facts by accepting that Jesus rose from the dead. However, there have been many attempts throughout history to reconcile these um, and come up with other explanations. Here are a few common objections which we'll take in turn. Firstly, that the resurrection story was some form of legend which became embellished over time, um, that it's essentially a variation of myths from other religions, that it was invented as some form of deception, and there's a suggestion that Jesus didn't actually die but was badly injured and somehow recovered, or that the disciples only ever saw Jesus in hallucinations or visions. So I want us to take these in turn and think about these in light of the, the five historical facts. So firstly, was Jesus' resurrection an embellished legend? So the argument here says that um, there are plenty of accounts of dying and rising gods in Greek and Roman literature, and that the resurrection essentially was um, a similar type of story that was influenced by those. Now, reasons you'd probably challenge this um, is firstly around the literary style of the Gospels. When we read the Bible. The Bible is made up of lots of different books. Lots of them are written in very different styles. Um, for example, if we read the Psalms, it's in a very poetic style. We read a lot of the um, prophecy, um, prophetic books um, in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, but also the New Testament and Revelation. They're written in very much symbolic language. But there are also large sections of the Bible which are very much written kind of um, more as... Um, historical facts or just normal narrative so I'm thinking of say in the Old Testament the books of Kings and then there's nothing to suggest that those are written um, metaphorically at all and the Gospels are similar we read them and there's nothing which is kind of there's no mythical or um, symbolic language in them they are fairly to the point and just re reporting kind of what happened um, likewise the um, Roman and Greek literature was generally very symbolic. Um, we have accounts of um, minotaurs, we have accounts of um, Icarus flying towards the sun, sorts of things which you know, we, we don't believe were literally true, but were written um, kind of um, symbolically, um, perhaps uh, fantastically, um, to essentially tell a good story. But the Gospels are written in a very different, different way to that. Also, we know that Jesus' resurrection has been um, written in both in, in the Bible and also non-biblical writings from different authors close to the event itself. We've seen some of the examples already of the different historians. That doesn't really give much time for a legend to develop. Say the historian is writing, I think Josephus we saw was more in the late first century, uh, attacking us about 100 years later. That's not that much time really to develop a legend compared to some of the more Greek and Roman myths. And finally, if this really was just a legendary story, would the disciples and people like Paul and James really have been convinced to give up their lives um, if they knew the truth to be different? I mean, generally, the, I think the suggestion is that the Greeks and the Romans knew that their poetry was um, great stories but weren't literally true, um, and they wouldn't have given up their lives for it. Whereas um, Paul and James and the other, uh, other um, disciples um, absolutely believed that this was literally true to the extent they could give up their lives. So if we look at these five facts in, in turn, how does it explain it 
yes, that um, it, it could potentially explain that Jesus did die on a cross could be consistent with it then having a legend of what happened next. But it doesn't really explain um, around Jesus' disciples, um, around um, their actions afterwards, particularly also with Paul and with James. Um, and then maybe potentially partially explains around the empty tomb as well. Could have potentially been part of the legend, but really, you know, how did that, how, how was the body, um, did, how did that get out of the tomb? So embellishment as a theory doesn't really account for each of these five facts and we therefore can't really accept it. Similarly, we'll look at the idea that Jesus' resurrection was a, essentially a variation of myths from other religions. So, put some names here, um, Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, Attics and Marduk, which are often cited by sceptics as examples of resurrection stories which came from other religions. Um, I remember... Um, 10 years ago or so there was a, 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 quite a lot of talk around Osiris um, and his similar story being fairly similar to Jesus um, and um, the suggestion is that Jesus is just another one of these stories from other religions about deaths and resurrections this is fairly similar to what we've just talked about with embellishment but um, many of these stories have fairly vague details and they're written in fairly mythical language. So there's a suggestion, so example here, that Bacchus and uh, Hercules ascended to heaven on a winged horse called Pegasus, which is quite different to how the Gospels are written. They don't talk in that sort of language. The other interesting thing is that um, of these, um, they, we get account that parallels Jesus' resurrection around 100 years afterwards. So um, the, the suggestion here is that most of these are actually written after Jesus' resurrection rather than before. Um, so these Adonis and Attis, they came around 150 to 200 AD. By that time, the um, stories around Jesus would have become more and more well known. And the suggestion is that actually it's the other way around, that these stories are more influenced by the death and resurrection of Jesus than Jesus was by them they were written afterwards. The only one of these which predates Christianity is Osiris, which was an Egyptian cult. But this story is again written in very non-historical style um, and talks about his body chop being chopped into lots of little pieces and then reassembled. Very different, more of a kind of zombification idea, potentially consistent with mummies at the time, very different to the idea of resurrection. So similarly, I don't think we can really say that this would explain why disciples would have given their lives up um, and can't really be accepted as a valid theory. The next idea was, was the resurrection story invented as a deception? So the argument here being that um, what the disciples may have claimed that they've seen Jesus, but why should we believe them? Um, and that's assuming that there was some form of ulterior motive for the first Christians um, who would have essentially um, lied and told up, made up this story and pushed this story in an attempt to claim power for themselves. And then the claim, the claim that the disciples would have stole that body would be consistent with that idea, that these, these men were essentially thieves. They've stolen a, a dead body and they've built up a, a deceptive story around it to try and claim power for themselves. However, we come back to the idea that the disciples were willing to be martyred for the gospel. Now, no matter how much power that you, you're claiming to be able to get from this, um, that's not going to outweigh this. 
sure, you may have got lots and lots of followers out of it, but you're still being put to death. Would they really um, have gone through with being put to death before saying, wait a minute, I'm actually making this up? And similarly, was there really that much power that these men gained? Um, we know, for example, somebody like Paul, who would have lived a fairly comfortable and privileged life before his conversion, um, suddenly was living a, a nowhere near as much um, uh, comfortable life as he was before. He was put to death, ultimately. I don't think these men really actually gained much from, um, from, from preaching the resurrection at all, and, and Paul's writings are very much consistent with that. And so would, that, would a clear lie from the other disciples really have persuaded a man like Paul? He was a very educated man. The suggestion is he would be able to see through a lie that had maybe been told by uneducated men. No, we know Paul was converted because he saw Jesus himself. So another theories were suge- um, have suggested that someone else other than the disciples stole the body and had deceived all them. But we know that people like Paul and James were not um, were not converted based on the um, based on the appearance of Jesus after. Um, so we know the likes of Paul and James were not converted by the empty tomb. They were converted because they had seen the risen Jesus um, after he descended. In Paul's case, so I don't think we can really say that the um, the deception idea really adds up. It doesn't account for how the likes of Paul and James could have been converted, and that the disciples were really sincere. So the next suggestion is, did Jesus actually die at all? Or was he just unconscious? And did he make a recovery? Now, everything which has been written in history about the brutality of crucifixion makes it very, very unlikely that anyone could survive that. Um, The Gospel of John describes a spear being thrust into Jesus' um, side when he was already dead. And it's very doubtful that an unconscious man could have survived that, given the amount of bleeding that would have occurred. And even if Jesus wasn't dead and had somehow made a recovery, how would he be strong enough to roll away the tomb and to be able uh, roll away the tombstone and be able to get past a guard? I mean, even if, he's, even if he's somehow regained consciousness, he's got to have weeks of building up strength. There wouldn't be any food inside the tomb, and it seems very, very unlikely. So the suggestion that Jesus didn't really die doesn't really seem to account for any of these facts and can't be accepted. And next is the idea of did Jesus' disciples um, actually just see Jesus as, as a form of hallucination? Uh, and were they deluded by that? Um, so some definitions there. So hallucination is essentially a false perception of something that isn't really there. Um, and a delusion is more of a shared false belief. Now, any kind of psychological study of hallucinations makes it quite clear that these are private experiences. Um, Say, for example, um, studies where people have uh, taken various hallucinogenic substances and start to hallucinate, um, it's not common that people actually hallucinate the same things. You may have um, a couple of people in a room all seeing all sorts of different things. So, but as the disciples all claim to see Jesus in a group, and all their um, accounts are fairly consistent for each, each other. So it's very unlikely that they could have all had exactly the same hallucination at the same time, because that's not really how hallucinations work. 
Groups can, however, be deluded by sharing false beliefs. But that really can't account for this idea of, a, of the empty tomb. Even if they had hallucinated or been deluded into seeing somebody who um, they then believed was Jesus but actually wasn't him, then you'd expect Jesus' body should still be in the tomb. But then even then, look at the likes of, um, so you have the concept of also of grief hallucinations and grief delusions, which can take place when somebody's so lost a close relative or, or friend, they can hallucinate and think they've actually seen that body. But if you think of somebody like Paul, who'd persecuted the church, he wasn't in the mindset to um, have a grief hallucination of Jesus, because he he was vastly opposed to everything that Jesus had said um, and all his followers. So they weren't really in the mindset of having those thought, that form of hallucination. So whilst it may, temp it may in a sense potentially explain how Jesus' disciples may have been so strong in their convictions, um, it doesn't really account for people like Paul and James who are more distant, and it certainly doesn't account for the empty tomb. So we've looked at a few other suggestions that people have attempted to make throughout history to explain the resurrection, but none of them really stand up to scrutiny. So we ask ourselves, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? We've taken two other here examples from the Gospels of things that Jesus had said when he was alive. We read in Matthew 16, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in John 2 he says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus had predicted he was going to die and rise from the dead after three days, which is then what the Bible claims actually happened. And so the simplest and the clearest explanation of all these five facts is that it actually happened. That Jesus did, as he said he was going to do, he did, actually did rise from the dead. If we believe that Jesus died on the cross... If we believe that Jesus' disciples um, believed and that he had risen and that he had appeared to them, that Paul was converted and that James was converted and that the tomb was empty, as the evidence that we've seen all points towards, the simplest and clearest explanation of all these five facts is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? It suggests because... The evidence suggests so. And we saw how important and how central that is to our belief. And again, we ask the question of, okay, we've seen that um, the evidence suggests that Jesus rose from, the bed, rose from the dead. The Bible talks about this. And so if we can believe in the resurrection, then we can believe in the Bible. Thank you.